tonight we're going to be in the Gospel of John. Surprise, surprise, right? The last few weeks. <laughs> so we're going to be there again. John 1. Um, and we're going to be continuing on, on this last uh, sermon for us until New Year's Eve, since then we're not going to be gathering for worship next week as a group, um, but rather over at Vermont. Um, but tonight, this will be more of a Christmassy sermon, so I'm excited. Um, Advent, Christmas, so. Anyways, um, let's go ahead and read John 1, 14 through 18. This is our text for this evening. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we now come to the not just the reading, but now the preaching of your word, uh, that you would be glorified. Uh, that you would be adored, O oh Lord, as we seek to um, hear this gospel right from your very word. May we receive it by faith, O oh Lord. May we have open and ready hearts before you to receive this gospel truth and to rest in it. And as we hear now the preached word, that we would hear the voice of Jesus through this text even, and through this, this word, oh Lord. His heart for us, his longing for us to know him and to know his love. <clears throat> we pray, O oh God, that your spirit would be so gracious to us to cause us to see Jesus more fully in this time. I pray, O oh Lord, that you and your power would go forth and convict us where we need convicting Minister to us what we need, serving, and lead us deeper, O oh Lord, into an intimate knowledge of you and with you. For you are truly our source of life. There is no other. So we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, well, I think a lot of us know this, but have you ever considered the fact that each one of us are indeed Seekers after glory. We are glory seekers. We often live for amazement, discovery, beauty on display, and moments of sheer childlike wonder. That's why so many of us travel long distances, like I know a few of us are even this coming week and next week, just to take in these new sights. It's why we pursue and maintain careers that pique our curiosity. It's why we pick up hobbies that excite us with new interests. We are impressionable people, irresistibly drawn to glorious things. But have you ever considered that this desire to seek after glorious things is not necessarily always a sinful thing? We often think of it as being idolatrous, right? But this pursuit of glory is actually a gift that God's given us. No other beast or animal or anything of the nature seeks after glory. Only his special creation. Just us. Humans. So the purpose then of declaring God's glory 
his glory is etched into our own hearts as his image bearers. And it's even written in the skies above. The rocks, for instance, the lowest of all creation, are fashioned to cry out the glory of God if we, his people, should ever remain silent. The Lord has artfully designed us, then, as the chief of all of his creation, to be captivated, though, by what is most astounding, namely him, and to discover that our chief and highest end is for the very purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever fully. After all, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, his only son, to display the fullness of his glory by taking upon himself the fullness of humanity. This mystery is the most remarkable event in all of history. We, we know it, of course, as the incarnation. We think of it, especially during Christmas time. But the glory of this event of Christ coming to earth is that our God in love became man. It sounds simple to us. But have we actually let that truth sit, set a little while in our own hearts? It's why John 1.14, though, this famous verse, is one of the most well-known and well-loved verses in the entire Bible. Because it speaks to our hearts that Christ actually wants to be with us. So here we find Jesus right in John 1.14 and following. The eternal word of God, not just declare, but actually prove just how much he loves us in the visible manifestation of God's glory in this little humble king that we were just saying of. But a humble king who is full of both grace and truth. And so our main idea for tonight is this, is that in revealing himself to be the source of grace and truth, Jesus makes us to become a people who are marked as well by his grace and his truth. And so again, our first point, is that the source of grace and truth is Jesus. We see that in verse 14. So beginning here, we read that the word became flesh, and what did it do? What did he do, really? <laughs> he dwelt amongst us. Now, countless songs, books, blogs, and even sermons have been written that strive to capture the meaning of just that simple, you know, profound, historic event. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But words simply fail to convey the mystery of God's will and the power of his being and the deepest love rooted in his own heart of compassion for us to ever do such a thing. This is largely why during Jesus' own ministry on earth, his own disciples were so often slow to just even take in and comprehend the sheer magnitude of God in the flesh before their very eyes. Who can comprehend this truth? of the Incarnation, God in flesh. It's why the hearts of the disciples later on, in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, <clears throat> began, <clears throat> their hearts began to burn within them as the resurrected Christ began to slowly reveal his fulfillment of the scriptures in all their totality. As he unpacked from the Old Testament, all of it, that all of it had to do with him, his death and his resurrection, namely, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed to all the nations. It's why the church has never ceased to continue telling the Christmas story of the Word who took on flesh. See, in Christ's incarnation, we see the divine himself take up new residency in human nature. In Christ, we see the Son perfectly maintain the fullness of his Godhead while 
taking to himself, as our Westminster Confession says, taking to himself a true body, a reasonable soul, and being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, and born of her, and yet without sin. But even more astounding than Christ's act of incarnation is the eternal purpose of the triune God behind his action. His purpose. See, his incomprehensible purpose from before time even began was to mediate on our behalf. To not just relate with us, but actually speak over us and speak on our behalf as prophet, priest, and king. That is to say that he communicates all of his power and glory and honor and his brilliance to us so that we might find him to be altogether worthy of all these things, and so enjoy him as our God, the source of grace and truth. And even in our weakness and in our sin, Christ Jesus, through taking on humanity, doesn't just fully understand us and our temptations and our infirmities, but in his incarnation, he actually met us and continues to meet us in these things. And he tends to us with his healing hand, mercy. That is what the incarnation proclaims to us. That is the gospel right there, even here in John 1.14. But how can Jesus in his incarnation, his taking on human flesh, do this for us? Well, he does this by reconciling us sinners with a holy God in his own flesh, in his own person. See, in the words of the Westminster Larger Catechism, Christ was and continues to be God and man in two entirely distinct natures and yet one person forever. For the rest of eternity, he will continue to be man and God forever joined. See, the glory of Christ come in the flesh is not just that he came to take away our sin that he continues to live to intercede for us. He continues to pour forth prayers over us, protecting us, shepherding us, safeguarding us from above in the heavenlies. And so every time that we sin, he proves to be the only one, God and man together, who is ready and eager to receive us and to apply the salve of his gospel to our rebellious hearts. In our moments of weakness, our moments of lostness comforts us with his Holy Spirit's presence. He assures us of his unending care and his provision to meet us as our ever-present help in time of need. And when our hearts cry out by the Holy Spirit who lives in us as believers to the heart of our Father who is listening readily for us and to us in heaven, it is Christ himself who attends us who comes alongside us, so to speak, as we learn to behold him and commune with him all the more by faith. This is why John, the gospel writer, uses that word dwell here in the very beginning of verse 14 in John 1. Jesus dwells with us. Now, sadly, we don't have time to go into the fuller meaning of this, but that word dwell, archaic as it may sound, is something that we still do use in proper context. Uh, we often use uh, the term dwell, uh, like our, our homes, right? It's a dwelling place. It's a place that 
you know, we might live. But the word dwell is so much more than just living in that same sense. It means so much more than just simply a place, like a dwelling place where we live. Rather, it is a word that in the original Greek language in John chapter 1, comes directly from the Old Testament idea of God's glory that inhabited the temple of his praise. God's glory in the Old Covenant inhabited the temple, just was brimming within it, pouring forth from it. And it's in that same sense that Christ in his glory dwells with us. See, the glory of God in the Old Testament was the very real presence of God made known to his people as he commanded his people to worship him through the Old Testament liturgy, the songs of worship, the reading of the scriptures, the proclamation of God's law, and the sacrifices that were made all demonstrated, yes, genuine remorse for sin and repentance, but it demonstrated all the more God's glory. That God's glory dwelt with us, a very broken and sinful people. Now the late theologian J.B. Lightfoot, wonderful theologian, put it very well by saying that the glory of God that was seen in the temple was, in quote, the visible symbol of the Almighty God, the heart of the religious worship of the Israelites, the center and the focus of the nation. It was a glorious thing. Furthermore, the glory that Israel experienced while they were at the temple was the very power of the word of the Lord, the divine majesty himself in their midst. See, the temple served as a physical place where believers under the covenant could look and go and be reminded on a very continual basis that God was actually with them, that he wanted to be with them, even in light of their sin. And so the communion with God that was experienced even way back when, even in that physical temple, is actually really in many ways a continuation of what we see running throughout the entirety of the Bible. There's so much here, and I'd love to unpack it later for you guys if you're interested in hearing more about this. But that same glory that was there in the temple was the same glory that I believe was even there in the very first temple that being the Garden of Eden. Now, we often don't look at the Garden of Eden as being a temple. And again, time would fail us here, and again, I'd love to go unpack it for you later on. But all throughout, even the Old Testament, that language of the temple is used even before the physical temple was created. The Garden of Eden actually has temple-like language all around it when you read the account in Genesis 1 through 3. And that same glory that was experienced there in the Garden of Eden at that first garden temple was seen as well all throughout the rest of Scripture in various places. For instance, this same glory was seen in the rescue of God's people, such as Noah and his family, those who took refuge in the ark. And they experienced God's glory even right there as they were rescued. And as time went on, even as the people of God attended to worship at the tabernacle and finally the physical temple itself, they continued to see God's glory on display. The presence of God, therefore, then, was seen by all the Israelites from the very beginning of time, even way back when, all the way to John here in John chapter 1. The same glory was seen as the Israelites traveled out of slavery in Egypt 
by the cloud of direction as they fled slavery, and as the glory of God hovered over the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. Furthermore, the ceremonies of cleansing, the sacrifices of repentance, the yearning for God through fasting and prayer, and the dependency upon God's law for obedience to his name, all of these things prompted Israel to revel all the more in the glory of God. And so the glory of God is in many ways a centralized theme throughout Scripture, from the garden to the ark to the tabernacle and the wandering in the wilderness to the actual physical temple that is chiefly, as we know, found in Christ, the true temple by name. Now, I can imagine that all of us know what happened with these Israelites, though. You know, they often were people that sought after their own glory rather than God. See, the nation of Israel began to chase after other gods, as the Old Testament explains to us. They ended up defaming the holy name of God through their sins, sins that would even eventually put the unbelieving nations to shame. And as that happened, the glory of God vacated that first temple. This departure is vividly described for us um, from God's heavenly perspective in Ezekiel 10, as the glory vanished and, and fled out of the temple. See, the brilliance of his glory left the people of Israel for a time as they turned their wills against him and abandoned him and divorced him in their own hearts as they committed adultery with their unspeakable pet sins. But the gospel continued to be proclaimed well in advance to believing Israel. The gospel that one day the glory of God would actually return. And it wouldn't return in a physical place, again, like the Garden of Eden or the Ark or whatever else, but rather it would return in the very person of the Messiah himself. We see this in places like Haggai 1 verse 8. In Zechariah 2, verse 10, and Ezekiel 43, verse 7, all these places and more all speak of God's eagerness to come once more and to dwell or temple or tabernacle with his people for all eternity. For instance, in Zechariah 2, the divine word of God spoke to Israel saying these words, Sing and rejoice. These are Jesus' own words. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. That's Jesus himself in Zechariah 2 speaking and promising his future coming. And in time, this same word of God, Jesus himself, did come and he did dwell with us as he took on human flesh and residency with us and put his majestic glory on full, unending display. But again, not in a physical place. Rather, himself. In the flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. This is why John 1.14 says in very personal language, we have seen his glory. We've seen Jesus. We've seen glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, this glory on display is none other than our Lord Jesus himself by name. He is the glory of God. He is the source then of both grace and truth for us who believe. And so this leads us to our second and final point. That as we seek Jesus and behold Jesus, the glorious one, by faith, we will become all the more of people marked by his grace and his truth. Now it's been said before that we become like what we behold. Whatever we're looking at, whatever we're focusing on, we become more and more and more like that. 
And I believe that this is very true of us as we set our minds on the things of Christ Jesus, the things that are above. Now, as a young church plant, you and I together have the privilege of laying the groundwork even now for our worship. As we desire to make this place a place where God's glory is seen, and sensed, and experienced, and known as Jesus ministers to our hearts by faith through the work of the Spirit. Friends, we will become the what we behold. And our focus, whatever that focus might be as a church plant, will eventually become our identity. And so every week, my challenge for us is to remain focused on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We must remain focused on his glory. Otherwise, we will fall astray. Now, there are so many things that can, of course, be considered good defining traits of any church or even a church plant. Good things, such as an inner love for the Word of God, the Bible. Good things like a heart of humility. Good things like hands that are ready to serve the broken and the oppressed in this world and even downtown. Good things like a desire to see biblical justice and truth upheld. Good things like compassionate grace displayed in both our speech and in our body language toward others. But we will never be a people marked by God's grace and truth unless we are primarily seekers after God's glory by the power of the Spirit, again, in the face of Jesus Christ. We can't even prioritize good things over Jesus, in other words. The moment we do that, we get off course. Now, in my own lifetime, I've seen so many churches rise and fall upon this one priority. This thing either makes or breaks churches. It's this, their worship. Do they worship in such a way that they bring praise to God's glorious grace? And do they keep the worship of God preeminent in their weekly worship and in their very being, not just as a corporate body, as a church, but also as individuals? This will make or break a church. And honestly, truth be told, it'll make or break us as well. It'll make or break us as well. It will. Yeah. See, all of us here have been a part of previous churches. And the nature of a church plant is that it's exciting, it's new, it's fresh. But we know that that is not enough to keep a church alive. (laughs) Just the newness of it, or the freshness of it. I'm sure many of us, including myself, have seen collectively churches that were driven by all the wrong things. Uh, Things like pragmatism, or by man-centered church growth models, or by seeking to gain popularity among the surrounding community, or by leaving God's unchanging truth and real sovereign grace by the wayside just for momentary favor with their fellow man. But as we do the work of ministry here in downtown Lynchburg, here at Downtown Press, My prayer is that God's praise will continue to be front and center in all that we do. I'm thankful because I know that that is our hearts here. I want to encourage you guys in that. See, our focus as a church plant in the coming months, even in the coming years, will determine not just our identity or our reputation in the community, it will determine our outcome. What happens to us even years down the road? Will we be a church then that bears witness to Christ? To Christ's glory, not our own. 
John 1, verse 15 and following in our passage refers once again then to John the baptizer. You know, this man who was proclaiming the glory yet to come, as we looked at last week, this glory that was still coming. As we saw last week, we saw that John the baptizer came to bear witness to Christ as the eternal word of God in the flesh. And here in verse 15, we see that he now specifically declared that Christ was indeed before him. Before him in time, that is, and in preeminence, and power, and authority. Not just in chronological order, but in firstness, in priority. For Christ himself is the Ancient of Days. He's the only mediator for his people. Christ is the only true prophet, priest, and king of God. And while this verse here, verse 15, seems parenthetical, even has parentheses around it in the ESV translation, while it can seem parenthetical to the rest of our passage, it really is core to our belief about Christ. See, is Christ himself first preeminent of highest priority in our own lives? Is he first in our own families? Is he first in our working? Is he first in our living? Is he first in our speech and in our conduct? Is he first here at downtown Perez? Do we devote ourselves not just to the public worship of God on Sundays, but also to private worship even as individuals during the week? Verse 16 continues to go on and tell us that it is from the fullness of this glorious Christ that we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through the conduit of Moses as a spokesperson for God, but grace and truth came from the very source, Jesus Christ, the divine agent of grace and truth himself by name. Now, of course, no one has ever seen God, but Jesus Christ, who is eternally God, who was eternally even in the bosom of the Father, eternally beloved and praised and honored and adored by all the hosts of heaven, this Jesus, he has made, has made, rather, God the Father known to us. Friends, as we continually learn to see Christ all the more fully through his word read and preached and believed and seen even here in our midst, when we do this, we'll come to see God all the more fully. See, in the person and work of Jesus, Christ has fully expounded or exegeted, if you will, everything that we may ever desire to know about God the Father. He's made it known. Even the Greek, I believe, is that word that we get exegesis from. He's, he's exegeted the Father for us. He's made the Father known for us. And in letting this word of Christ dwell in our hearts by faith, the goodness of the gospel, Jesus is so faithful to transform each one of us into a people that become marked more and more by his goodness and by his righteousness, by his grace and by his truth. See, in effect, the world around us will be made to see us as we become more and more like Christ, as those who we really are. They'll begin to see us as beloved children of God, as sons and daughters, as living stones that together form the very temple place of dwelling for God's glory, even here on this earth. See, we here in downtown Lynchburg have a much grander sight to behold 
than just the Blue Ridge Mountains off there in the distance. Or the city's skyline as you're coming back down from Madison Heights along the river. Or the historic architecture that Esther and I live in here in downtown. Or even that beautiful, beautiful James River. <laughs> it is it's always mud. Yeah. <laughs> it's very brown. <laughs> it's very dirty. You love rivers. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it is. Further up, yeah. All the way but, to the cow pasture. Oh, yeah. Past, all past that. That's the headwater. Yeah, oh, there you go. Friends, we have a much more glorious view than just the beauty that we see around us. The mountains, the streams, everything. We have, before our eyes, a glory center that Christ himself is building. It's the church. It's his temple here on earth. And friends, it's not about us, but you are part of that glory center. You are members. You're stones of it. God is making you into a glorious thing. See, God is glorified in us as members of Christ's body. He's glorified in us as we ourselves are joined together one by one by the very word of Christ and by prayer for one another as we fellowship with one another. He's glorified in our worship that resounds even within this tiny little apartment in your spirit-led love and in your charity toward one another. See, your worship before our holy God is indeed a pleasing, fragrant offering of praise every single Sunday that we meet here. It's the very aroma of Christ, just like the original temple had, the smells and everything going on. We are an aroma before Christ the temple here on this earth. The aroma to Christ even before those who are being saved. So as we conclude, I want you to dream a little bit with me. See, as we here at Downtown Price continue to grow both in size and Lord willing and influence within this community, we will, will we rather seek to become known by others as a charitable or loving and hospitable people? Will we be those who actually end up attracting others to come and to see not us, but the goodness of God that dwells within us and how we demonstrate the very love and goodness that was first shown to us in the cross of Christ? Will we be so marked by the grace and truth of Jesus that we cannot help but reflect his grace and truth to those who have yet to see and believe upon him? Will we be those who desire to see God's kingdom come and his will be done as this church is planted, as we see men and women come to know Jesus? Will we be those of whom it is said, God dwells with them? That is my desire. Is it ours as well? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that yours truly is kingdom and power and the glory forever. So, Lord, as we come before you and recognize that um, we have been bought by your blood, purchased, redeemed, forgiven, restored, healed, we ourselves are glorious rooms. We are those, as Francis Schaeffer said, are 
people who are, yes, broken, but are being made beautiful. Glorious ruins. And so, Jesus, we thank you for not leaving us as image bearers, broken, being down, bruised by sin, left for dead. We thank you that in your kindness and your goodness you came on a rescue mission for us. And that you came to restore us and to let us see your glory in the very face of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, let us see you by faith on this side of glory. And may we long to know you all the more day by day as the Holy Spirit lifts our hearts and our eyes heavenward by faith. Oh Jesus, we dedicate this church plan to you. It is yours. It is your glory center. And so we ask, oh Lord, that you would make us to become glorious for your sake. That we might reflect your glory here in downtown so pray all this in the name of our glorious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.